a lot of ground to cover today as we start this new series, In Exile. And what we're going to do in this series that we've called In Exile is we are going to look at the letter, 1 Peter. We call it the book of 1 Peter in our Bibles. Right? We're going to look at 1 Peter, but we're going to look at it through the lens of asking, what does this say for us in navigating a post-Christian America? What does 1 Peter have to say to the church as we navigate a post-Christian America? And that introduces a couple of questions, right? So first off, we need to understand what we mean when we say post-Christian America, right? Is, is Christianity gone or is America gone? Neither. So what does post-Christian America mean? And then why on earth is First Peter a place that we should be looking at this subject? So first off, what does post-Christian America mean? You might have a lot of different things in your head, um, or we across this room would have different things in our heads when that term is thrown around, post-Christian America. Um, the, the reality is that America has sort of been an experiment in the way that governing has gone on in the history of the world. No country before us had this unique relationship with religion that we created. We said that we didn't want there to be a official, an official religion of our country. There was no set church that everyone had to be a part of in order to be a citizen of our country. And not only was there not an official religion of our country, but individuals in our country would be allowed to practice whatever religion they wanted. So we have separation of church and state, and we have freedom of religion. And that has created a weird dance that we have been trying to work out for over 200 years. And that worked pretty seamlessly for a long time because the people who founded this country were largely influenced by Judeo-Christian worldviews expressed through Protestant Christianity. And so while we didn't have an official religion as a country, our moral code, our religious activities, our spiritual nature felt pretty common and shared because it was inherited from Protestant Christian beliefs. Letting everybody express their religion however they want is very easy when everyone has the same religion. Things have changed a little bit, right? Religious pluralism is now very, very real. People have lots of different religious beliefs. We've become a lot more diverse as a country. We have, we have immigrants that have come not from Western Europe, but from all over the world with very different belief systems. And so we don't have an official religion, but we've also said that everybody can practice their own religion, and that makes things feel very different because everybody is not coming in with the same basic fabric of Protestant, Christian, moral, and spiritual viewpoints. Does that make sense? Alongside religious pluralism is secularism, which is not just different religious beliefs, but the belief that no religious belief is right, that everything in this world is completely understood without the supernatural. We have no need for the supernatural, and so let's just forget all of that. And so because we've become more religiously plural, because we've become more diverse, because secularism has been on the rise for a long time, we now find ourselves in a world that looks very, very different. And it doesn't feel 
like Protestant Christianity is the dominant voice in our world like it once was. Our, our civil religion, as one author puts it, has become shaken up. Our world has been turned upside down a little bit. And so we look around and what we used to think were very accepted cultural norms, they're different. And we will find ourselves, if we're not already there, moving from the center of culture to the margins of culture. And to explain what those terms mean a little bit, I thought I'd just share some words from a guy named Terry Coy that wrote a book, Return to the Margins, that that has been extremely helpful for me in trying to articulate um, what it is that we mean by post-Christian America and how does the church do this. And so what, what Terry Coy describes as the center of culture He says, American Christians must prepare themselves for life at the margins of society. We must be prepared for a significant loss of the traditional and expected status, respect, influence, and even power we have enjoyed at the center of society. So because our beliefs sort of fit with the dominant in-group of our country, there was a level of status that we had as Christians in America. We got really, really used to that. We need to get used to the idea of leaving maybe the center and being pushed more to the margins. And here's what he means by when we were at the center. He said, being at the center meant we could make certain assumptions about biblical literacy, moral and ethical behavior, child rearing and marriage, education, and even politics. We could pray openly, evoking the name of Jesus. We could assume most people attended church, had grown up in church, or at least had some understanding of what church was about. We did not hesitate to refer to America as a Christian nation. Now, whether or not these assumptions were valid, true, or even desirable, we hesitate to make them, except perhaps in some areas deep in the Bible Belt, and maybe not even there anymore. Goodbye center, hello margins." starting to make sense what post-Christian America might look like. Center versus margins make sense? Yeah. I see a lot of head nods. You see, and Terry goes on to explain what life in the margins may look like as we go from the center to them. Right? In the margins for Christians, we may experience losses of freedom to express Christian beliefs, especially in the domains of academics, politics, and media. This is written in 2014, by the way, so like maybe prediction, maybe present reality. Right? He said that there will come to be further restrictions on what is identified as hate speech, and at some point, just preaching the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, of teaching a specific sexual ethic, of overt evangelism, those things may at some point in our future be called hate speech as we are on the margins of society and not the center, right? We may expect possible losses of education and job opportunities, career advancement, business freedoms because of Christian beliefs. We can see possibly the loss of tax-exempt status for churches, religious organizations, the limited ability of churches and religious organizations to purchase property, and an increasing perception of Christians as intolerant, divisive, and backwards. Any of that sounding familiar? Yeah, 
So whether we're actually in post-Christian America already or we're moving, if Europe and Canada are a forecast of what's to come, we need to become much more comfortable with the idea of moving from the center to the margins. And that's scary. Because there's a whole bunch of us in this room that feel like this has happened overnight. Right? It, it, we, we woke up one day and this world felt drastically different. I would say even in the last 10 years, the cultural, social, political, technological changes that have made our world feel different are, are very, very noticeable. I would also say there's a little bit of a tension in this room because while some of us feel like this happened overnight, there are also people in here who have grown up with nothing other than the move to the margins happening. And so this is just the way the world is. And when we interact with this, we see it completely differently. Because for one, this is just the way the world is, and the other, the world has been completely flipped upside down, and we don't know what to do with it. And it can be scary for both. So I think it's unbelievably important that we talk about this. What, what does it look like for us as a church to navigate post-Christian America? Okay, that's the first question. Second was, why First Peter? Let me tell you about the letter of First Peter. First Peter was written by Peter, like Jesus' best friend Peter, the apostle, to churches scattered all over what is present-day Turkey. And he was writing to Christians who had accepted Jesus, and because of accepting Jesus, because they had placed their faith in Jesus, their world had been turned upside down. And it was hard for a couple of reasons. They were facing increasing persecution from the government, from the outside world, the, the Romans figured out from the time that these people first accepted Jesus to the time that this letter is being written, this Christianity thing isn't going anywhere, right? At first, it was just this random upstart religion with this rebel and a few people that followed him. It'll be gone tomorrow, but it didn't go away. In fact, it multiplied, and there were more and more and more Christians, and they did not fall in line with our system, and so they started ratcheting up persecution, and so the people that Peter is writing to are saying, this is getting really hard to be a Christian. Our world feels anti-Christian. The people around them, the world around them said, these people are backwards, they're idiotic, they worship a, a criminal who was crucified on a cross that they think came back to life, but they can't show them to us anymore. They're cannibals. There were smear campaigns and misinformation efforts on the part of their enemies that said they were cannibals because they talk about eating flesh and drinking blood when they're together. They meet at night in secret. They're a weird cult. Their views on marriage and sexuality are completely backwards from the culture around them. They don't fit in with our political and religious schemes. They say that we only worship Jesus and we can't acknowledge any other God Accept Jesus. Sound familiar? <laughs> Maybe First Peter would be a really good letter for us to look at as we try to navigate post-Christian America. People that felt like their world had been turned upside down and their communities that were safe at one point had suddenly been changed and everybody was now against them just because they wanted to follow Jesus. 
That's the position this church finds itself in, and that's what Peter writes to them about. So he starts his letter, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, over the next few weeks, we are going to cover a lot of 1 Peter. And we're going to dive into a lot of practical ways that Peter is speaking to this church. But today, in order for us to really get the most out of the next few weeks, we need to drill in on one word Peter uses here. That word is exiles. And we need to drill in on it because it doesn't mean hardly anything to us. And it meant everything to them. Peter chose that word specifically. And he chose it for a reason. It would have meant something very, very significant to the churches that read this letter. And we sort of glance over it because we don't have the same history that these churches did. These people who grew up in Jewish communities, who knew the story of the Jewish people. Exile is a very significant word to a Jewish person. Not so much to a 21st century American. He's calling them back to a part of their story, and he's saying, everything I'm going to say to you, you need to understand like your exiles. You need to read this through the lens of your history as exiles. And that would have been a very, very significant thing for a Jewish person to hear. So what is the history that we are largely unaware of? I promise I will make this as fast as I can. And you may feel like you're drinking through a fire hose a little bit, but we have a podcast, so you can go back and listen to anything that you didn't quite catch. But but no, this is so crucial. And actually, you may completely understand the Old Testament in a different way five minutes from now. Because these are things that I didn't know until I was in college learning how to teach the Bible to other people. But there were, there were big pieces of how God's word fit together that I didn't know. History of God's people that I didn't know. And so I think if we can sort of connect some dots, we'll understand why Peter calls these people exiles and why that's significant and what that has to say for us today. So stay with me. I promise I'm not going to be boring history teacher. God's people the Israelites, the Jewish nation, once they had settled in the promised land, they became a political nation with a king, right? Do we remember this maybe a little bit? You can head nod or shake your head. That's fine. I'm, I'm cool, ADD guy. Um, Saul, very first king of Israel, right? Saul is made king by God. He's anointed. Saul is succeeded by... David, right? Goliath, Bathsheba, we remember that guy? Okay, David is king. David has a son who becomes king. His name is Solomon. He's really smart. Okay, all three of those kings, Israel with everyone becomes larger, more influential, more prestigious, more powerful. They become more established as a nation with cultural norms. They're no longer vagabonds who travel all over the desert. They don't set up a tent anymore. They have a temple. They have a cultural identity. And they do things different from everybody else around them. 
right? Down to, they, they circumcised their boys. Nobody else did that. They don't eat pork. Nobody else did that. They do all sorts of weird things, and that's by design. God says, you're going to look different from everybody else because I want everybody to look at you, say, what is different? And the answer to be, it's God. The God they worship is very, very different. He doesn't share with other gods. He's not vengeful. He doesn't ask for child sacrifices. He doesn't demand drug use. He doesn't demand prostitution. Their God is very, very different. And God's plan is you will look different so that people will see you and therefore they will see me and everyone on earth will know me and reflect my glory because of you, my people. So, things are going really, really well. Saul, David, Solomon. Then, everything falls apart. Literally, the kingdom falls apart. It breaks into two. There's almost a civil war among God's people, and we now have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. They're side by side. Jerusalem is in Judah, the capital city, Israel is larger, and they both have different sets of kings. All of this is in the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Okay, the, those those six books sort of tell the history of what happened with the kings of Israel, how they got to be the place that they are. The prophets are happening inside the story of the kings, and so. Your Bible is not told in chronological order the way that it's ordered. The prophets are happening at different points within the kings, and they give us snapshots into what is happening in the kingdoms of Israel or Judah. Because what is happening in those kingdoms is that really, really bad kings are in charge, right? There's a few good ones. The only thing you have to do to be a good king in the book of Kings is try to do something religious that honors God. Because everywhere else, things are falling apart. And people are are incorporating weird outside religions and and they're getting lax on their practices of honoring God and, and things aren't good politically and there's wars and battles and power struggles. But at the same time, they're still Israelites. They still don't eat pork. They still circumcise their kids. They still observe Sabbath. They still do the things that make us feel like we have a common culture. And that common culture is built on a foundation of God. Now, we're not doing it perfectly, but at least there are rules that we follow, ways that that we interact with each other, the ways that we function as a society that are based on God's rules. Except things get even worse for the Israelites. Because after hundreds of years of not listening to prophets who said, you've got to turn this around. You've got to come back to God. You have to break your hearts and be God's people the way that he designed you to be. God finally said, I'll let you have what you want. And both kingdoms were conquered by outside armies. Israel was overtaken by the Assyrians, Judah overtaken by the Babylonians. And what happened when they were conquered 
both the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in and they rounded up thousands of Israelites and they put them in a caravan and took them out of their home and brought them back to their empire. Said, give us your best and your brightest. They are no longer Israelites. They're going to become Assyrians. They're going to become Babylonians. You are going to see that our way is better. And you're going to come to a very, very strange land. And it's going to be very different. And you are no longer the center of culture. We eat all the bacon we want. We don't want you to circumcise your kids. We don't care what your diet is. We don't care what your God says. We do things our way, and we have a bigger army than you, so get in line. And your role is no longer to be at the center. Your role is to get over there, you minority, and do what you're told. That's what happened in exile. The people who were taken were the exiles. Peter is saying, you guys are exiles. I'm writing to you as exiles. You are in a world that does not look like God wants the world to look. People don't like your kingdom vision. They aren't going to do things the way that you do it, and you're not the ones in charge. They are actively opposed to you. They are trying to take away your identity that is associated to God, and you need to figure out how to live that way. You are exiles. Let's stop denying it, and let's ask, how do exiles live? That's the story that Peter is inviting the church to place themselves in. And obviously, we're not the church in Turkey 2,000 years ago. We're not the people of Israel hundreds of years before that. But I think we've seen there's enough parallels that maybe what God says to his people in exile, what God says to his people in 1 Peter, has something to say to us today. So, for the rest of our time, let's look at how Israelites, how God's people respond in exile and what God tells his people to do in exile. Right? The first response that people have in exile is to fold. Right? We live in exile by folding and we just accept whatever it is that the in-group tells us to do. The people that are in power, the people that have the biggest swords, the people with the biggest army, the people with the political might, when they say do this, we're just going to do it. And maybe we'll keep our Jewish thing on the side, right? We'll honor God the way that we want to in our own home. We just won't do anything that, that creates waves, and we're going to go along with it. We're not going to look any different from Babylonians. That is a much easier way to live, but it's not the way that God asks his people to live. Remember from the very beginning, the point of God's people was to be different. Don't look like the Babylonians because the Babylonians need to see me. And if all they see is themselves, they're never going to get the picture. 
So you can't look just like the Babylonians. You can't look just like the culture around you. You have to be different because I'm different. This world is not holy. I am. And so I need people that reflect me to the world so that they can see a good and loving and merciful and redemptive God. Don't just fold up. The other response that people want to have is to live in exile by fighting. And, and again, we can't go into the weeds of all the, the historical data, but when Babylon comes in and Nebuchadnezzar the king says, you guys are in trouble, I'm in charge. King Jehoiakim, king of Judah says, okay, we're good. We're your subjects, that's fine. And the second Nebuchadnezzar leaves with his caravan of exiles, he starts calling everybody he can think of that might hate Babylon, particularly Egypt. And he says, hey, Egypt, you guys hate Babylon too, right? You wanna go fight them? Let's think of everybody else we can. Let's make a coalition. Let's get as strong as we can possibly get and let's take these guys out. Let's put ourselves back at the center where we belong. It's God's work. He wants us to do it. In fact, they start sending letters to the exiles in Babylon and they say, hey guys, just just sit tight for like a year, two at the tops because we're putting stuff together and we are gonna take these guys out. Just hang tight. The problem is that's not what God was saying to his people in exile. Jeremiah, one of the most important prophets that ever spoke to Israel. Jeremiah, he's also called the weeping prophet because Jeremiah got to watch everything fall apart. Jeremiah started speaking for God when Judah was still a kingdom and had a king. And he saw it coming. God God said, go tell the king, unless you guys turn this around, the Babylonians are going to take you out. And nobody wanted to listen to Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah got to watch the Babylonian army come in and round up thousands of his brothers and sisters and take them away in chains. Jeremiah then got to watch Nebuchadnezzar come back years later after he found out that they wanted to conspire with the Egyptians and completely destroy his city. The book of Lamentations is nothing but Jeremiah crying over what he's had to watch as his home world fell apart. Jeremiah, before Nebuchadnezzar comes back to destroy Jerusalem, he writes a letter to the exiles that are in captivity in Babylon. This is what he says to them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The third way that you can respond to exile is with faith. That's what Jeremiah asks. That's what God asks his people through Jeremiah to do. 
You're in exile. Your world has been overnight. You have gone from being the center of culture to the oppressed minority in a world that looks nothing like the world you grew up in. And I'm not asking you to just give up. I'm not asking you to fight a war. I'm asking you to be faithful. I am asking you to trust God. I'm asking you to plant a garden, to grow roots, to say, we're here, we're in exile. We're in Babylon. God be faithful. He follows it up. He says in verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem. Right? Jeremiah, God is very clear for the rest of the book. Babylon is going to get what's coming to them. But did you catch the timeline on that? 70 years. 70 years. For those of you in, ba- in Babylon, for those of you in exile, you're going to spend the rest of your lives in exile. Stay faithful. And not only are you going to be in exile, I want you to stay in exile. Don't resent it. Embrace it. Plant gardens, put down roots, have kids, raise your kids so that they can spend their entire lives in exile. Raise your children in Babylon. Because I've got this. Right? He follows it up with everybody's favorite verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Right, if you've graduated, if you've given a card to a graduate, if you've walked into a Christian bookstore, we've all seen that verse. Funny though, it doesn't mention the 70 years of misery that go along with that plan. But that's the plan. God says, I know that you are in exile, but I'm not surprised. In fact, what it says twice in that letter is that God is the one who put them in exile. Not only does God know you are in Babylon, God placed you in Babylon. And there is a plan. God is good. He is sovereign. He is very aware of what's going on. He's not afraid. Neither should you. So don't give up. Don't fight. Be faithful. And that's really, really hard. And it's really, really scary. Right? There are lots of reasons to not like exile, to not want our families to be taken to Babylon, to not want our children to grow up in Babylon. But if we can learn how to live through Babylon with faith, Babylon might actually be exciting. Exile is not just doom and gloom. Exile is an opportunity to see God do something absolutely incredible. What we will see in exile is that King Nebuchadnezzar say that the God of Israel is the most powerful God who is above every other God on earth and every person should honor that God because there's a young man named Daniel who knows how to be faithful in exile. In exile, we will see a Persian king elevate and give special favor to the minority that is in the margins and allow that minority to influence the center of culture from the margin because a faithful young woman named Esther 
knows how to live in exile. In exile, we will see the synagogue network explode. Right Before exile, God's people were in the nation of Israel, and that was it. They talked with each other about God, but they didn't get out of their comfort zone. Because they're in exile, synagogues spring up all over the known world, and everybody comes face to face with not just people who do weird things, but talk about a God who is completely different than any God they have ever heard. Because of exile... God is made known among the nations. Here's another cool thing that happens in exile. God's people finally give up idolatry and infighting because all of that stuff gets to take a back seat to worshiping the God who is going to be our rescue. We can band together as God's people because that's all we have now. Our hope is found in God, and all of that other stuff that we used to put our hope in is meaningless. And so let's worship Yahweh as God's people. Now, I may be, I'll admit, a little bit biased that Babylon and exile might be exciting, because I've spent a pretty significant portion of my life on the way to Babylon. But that's what makes what we do matter so much. Right? Praying for our work, praying for what we do every day when we're not in here, that matters because in exile, what you do among your neighbors matters. What we do with our neighbors shows our neighbors who God is. That's why it matters what happens in the city kids' hallway every single week because we're raising Daniel and Esther. Exile. Sorry. Exile is God's plan. And it might not be what we would want. It might not even be what he would have wanted for us. But he is sovereign. He is good. And he is redeeming all of creation. And in him, we can find hope. And Peter says to the church, you exiles, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Why? Because you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Your life has been completely transformed. You have experienced freedom and grace and mercy in a way that you never would have elsewise. And if you can experience that personally, you as a church can trust that he can do the same in exile. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fight for God. He is very, very capable. He's going to give the Babylonians what they have coming. In the meantime, you be faithful. Serve him. Make your city amazing. Bring the kingdom of God to Babylon so that they might see God at work in our world. That's incredible. That is good news. And if you have not experienced a God who can personally transform your life in a way that would make you go from an existence of 
not having an identity to having an identity to being a broken, messed up person to being someone that has been redeemed and freed and ransomed, I think you should give him a shot on that offer. If you have experienced life-changing grace from Jesus, I think you should trust him that he's going to see us through this too. He's with us even in exile. There is a plan, and it's good. We can trust him. I'm so excited for the next few weeks for us to look at what it, what it means to really live this out. Exile is not outside of God. The exile is God placing us in an incredible position to see his kingdom come everywhere. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being awesome. Thanks for being a God who is at work even in exile. Lord, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear your vision, your plan. May we have the courage to be faithful. God, may we trust you with our lives. May we trust you with our hearts. May we trust you with our kids. May we trust you in everything. Lord, may the grace that was enough to transform death into life be grace that we experience on a daily basis. Lord, may we have the courage to trust you. May we have the courage to be faithful. May your kingdom come here in our world, just like it is in heaven, and may it come through us. We love you. It's in your name. Amen. Amen.